three times a year, we do a short uh, series of messages about our church vision and values. Um, The reason we do that is we want to keep reminding ourselves um, of why we exist as a church and what we want our our values to be, what we want to be like, um, what we want our DNA to be as a church. And uh, the last few weeks we've been thinking about um, the idea of loving each other and loving each other like Jesus loved us. And the idea of thinking about that, that value as a church is we want to be a healthy community. Our heart as a leadership is that our relationships with each other would be characterized, would be marked by health, which would be a healthy community as, as we relate to each other. And um, we want to be a community that is different from those around us, a community that, as we love each other, people who, who know us, people who come in to church, and we've had a couple of great testimonies of that already this afternoon, see the way we love each other and go, wow, that feels like God. That feels different. I want some of that. We want to be a community that's attractive in how we love each other. And the topic we're thinking about today in the last of these, these messages, last of this series, um, is, I would say, probably one of the most important um, building blocks for a healthy community. In fact, I'd go so far as to say, if you don't have this thing, you can't be healthy. If you were to take this building block out, the whole wall would collapse. You can't have a healthy community without this thing. The topic is forgiveness. We're thinking about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a big subject, and for some, I'm aware forgiveness is, is tender, and it's, it's a difficult subject, but forgiveness is so important. It's so important. Why? Why is forgiveness so important? Well, the fact is, whenever you put a group of people together, in any context, whenever you have more than one person, you're going to get some friction, all right? Um, we're all different. Everyone's different, and that's great. God's made us all different. We all have different personalities. We all have different likes and dislikes. We all have different uh, passions, things that we're passionate about. We have different convictions. We have different hopes. We have different dreams, different desires. We're different, and that's great. But not only are we different, we all want our own way. <laughs> we're all selfish, and we all think our way's best. So when you get a lot of people, they are all different in ways that are different to each other, and they all want their own way, you get friction. And it's true of any group of people. Whenever you get more than one person, whenever there's a relationship, there's the potential for this rubbing up against each other and causing problems. You see it in in the workplace. Whenever you're put into a team, maybe you work in a team in your work, and you work with someone else, and they just do things differently, or they want things to be done a certain way. Maybe they're the team leader. And you just think, that's not the way to do it. It's not the best way. But they want it done their way, and you've got to submit. It causes friction. Or maybe there's someone in your team who is just a difficult person to work with. They just gossip or they're just hard to to be around and it causes friction. People are different. We see it in families. We see it all the time. Uh, Why why do you want want to do this at the weekends and not that? Why do you think that being clean and tidy is so important? Why do you think being clean and tidy is so unimportant? Everyone's got different priorities, different perspectives and when you put people together in a community and ask them to live together and interact, you get friction. And it's true of church as well. We're all different, and that's wonderful. And we all have different, different passions and different gifts, and that's wonderful too. That's the way God's made us. But at some point, when you get lots of people together who have got rough edges, who have got things about them that are a bit hard to live with maybe, you get people rubbing up the wrong way, at some point, it's inevitable that there's going to be hurt. It's inevitable that someone gets hurt in communities that are full of people who who sin. And there are different levels of hurt, right? So 
there are some, some hurts that are big hurts. And some people here have experienced big hurts. Maybe you've experienced a big hurt in your life. You've had someone in your life who, um, who has scarred you. And their actions in your life, their, their selfish actions, um, have resulted in you being hurt. And you carry that hurt around with you. Or maybe they've resulted in, in someone you love being hurt. And you carry that around with you too. Maybe it's abuse, or it's betrayal, or it's just absent, being absent when, when that person needed to be there for you. There's big hurts. And that might be from your past. It might be from your present. Maybe someone right now is, is deliberately making your life difficult. And maybe it's bullying. Maybe it's manipulating other people to get back at you behind the scenes. Maybe it's just freezing you out. And it's hard. And you know they're doing it. And they want to do it to hurt you. There's big hurts that we carry around. But there's also little hurts. Okay, we're, we all have areas of our lives where perhaps we're a little bit sensitive, um, a little bit protective, a little bit tender. Maybe it's your, your work or, or lack of work. Maybe it's your, your family or lack of family, your children, or something about your children. Maybe it's something about your, your relationships, something about your appearance. We all have something, we're a little bit sensitive. And it's easy when you interact with people who have rough edges for someone to just say a little comment, just make a little word that just hurts you. It, it, it pierces through to your heart and you're hurt. Whatever the level of hurt, whether it's big hurts, small hurts, getting hurt at some point is inevitable in a community of people. If any group at some point, there's going to be someone who's wounded. And when that happens, when you get hurt, when you get wounded by someone around you, intentionally or completely unintentionally, you've got two options. Okay, you can hold a grudge. That's the first option. You can hold on to that pain. You can hold it against that person. And you can say, I'm not going to let that go. I'm going to nurse that pain. I'm going to carry it around with me. I'm going to think of ways I can get back at them. Or I'm going to freeze them out. But they're going to pay. They're going to suffer for what they've done. That's the first option. Second option is you forgive. And forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not pretending you're not hurt. Forgiveness is letting go of the hurt. Forgiveness is releasing that person from the hold that hurt has on you. Forgiveness is not holding someone's sin against them. It's not holding someone's sin against them. When you think of that person not having their sin right next to them in that, in that moment, it's not keeping a record of wrongs. And it's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. It involves a cost. When you get hurt... Someone has to pay a cost for that hurt. It's either that person, by retaliating, by holding that thing against them, by holding a grudge, or you pay the cost by forgiving. And forgiveness is absorbing the hurt. And it's costly. It does require cost. But it's so important. It's so important that we do this hard thing called forgiveness. Why? Because without forgiveness, wounds won't heal. Without forgiveness, wounds won't heal. We get wounded, but if you don't forgive, if we don't forgive, you can never truly have a healthy community. It's not possible. It can't be done. Without forgiveness, wounds won't heal. We can't be healthy. If you're holding on to something, now you think that holding that sin against that person is making them suffer. But actually, that thing's controlling you. And it can take over your life. And people have had their lives destroyed by holding on to grievances, by holding on to hurts. And it eats you up. It destroys you. You may think when you hold a grudge, the other person's suffering. Actually, who's the person who suffers when you hold a grudge? They could be getting on with their life. It's you. It's you that suffers. And until you forgive, that wound won't heal. 
And it's a common misconception, I think, when we come to talking about forgiveness, that the person who's wounded me or hurt me needs to say sorry before I can forgive. And so you say, well, I can't forgive because the person hasn't said sorry. Actually, that's, that's not true. That's not true. Forgiveness is something that's entirely within your power to do. Now, reconciliation is different. If you want a relationship to be reconciled and brought back together, that requires two parties. That requires the other person to be willing to say sorry and willing to, to come back. But forgiveness doesn't require two parties. You can forgive if the person never comes and says sorry. It's not easy. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. This is just the reality. Without forgiveness, wounds won't heal. That's just the way it is. Without forgiveness, we can't have a healthy community. And that's why it's so important. That's why we want to, to cover it. And that's why we want to find an answer to the question, how do we do it? Because it's hard. How do we do it? How can we be a healthy community by forgiving each other when it's so difficult? And we're going to answer that question by looking at the example of Jesus, the ultimate forgiver. And we're going to go back to the chapter we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, John 13. So if you've got a church Bible, one of these black ones, um, grab it and turn to page 900. We're in John chapter 13. And if you haven't got one, then um, there's some at the front and the back. Just stick your hand up. So two weeks ago, Mike took us through uh, the first half of John chapter 13. And we saw Jesus' incredible act of service. This incredible act that he did where he, he got down on his knees. He was the leader, he was the master, and he washed his disciples' feet. And Mike was reminding us of what an amazing, uh, self-giving love Jesus' love is and how we're called to love each other in that way. But one of the most amazing things about that whole incident of Jesus washing his feet, one of the most amazing things is what's overshadowing the whole passage, is the presence in the room of the person who would betray Jesus, the presence in the room of, of Judas. And we, we see that in the first half of the passage. A couple of times John mentions it, just to flag it up. Have a look at verse 2 in John 13. He's introducing the scene. He says, during supper, and you think, okay, when... He's setting the scene. When, what does he say? When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He's flagging it right at the start. Everything's not well here. Something's wrong. There's someone here who doesn't belong. There's someone here who's not part of the group. The devil's already put it in his heart to betray Jesus. And that little thing that's bubbling away, it keeps going. Have a look at at verse 8. Jesus washes their feet. Um, Peter says to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you'll have no share with me. Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and feet. And Jesus says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash his feet, to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. Verse 11, that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Again, Jesus is flagging up now. There's someone here who doesn't belong. There's a, hold on, there's a, there's a shadow in the room. One of you is going to betray me. Not all of you are clean. And then he goes on, he gets his outer garments on, he sits and he explains what he's doing and why he's doing it. And then verse 18, he gets more explicit. Truly, truly, um, sorry, verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's saying there's someone here who's fulfilling that passage about the savior being betrayed. There's someone here who's not part of the group. So there's this tension kind of bubbling below the surface all the way through this incident as Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And then verse 21, the tension kind of bubbles up and, and comes to the surface. And it all comes out. Let's have a read from, from verse 21 of John chapter 13. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It says, there came a point in the meal where Jesus was troubled in spirit. The shadow that was over the room was settling in his heart. He was troubled. He just felt something's not right. He was weighed down. I don't know if you've ever been weighed down by something. If you've ever had something in your life that's just troubling you, and you wake up in the morning and it's there, perhaps a relationship, something's not right in your life, your finances, something's not right, and you wake up and you go to sleep in the evening and it's there, it's troubling your spirit. And Jesus felt troubled in his spirit. Why? Because he knew there was a person in that room who was going to betray him. He turned to his disciples and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, looking them in the eye, one of you will betray me. And you've got to keep in mind here who he's speaking to. He's speaking to 12 of his closest friends on earth. And they've been together for three years. They've, they've walked together through the villages and towns of Judea and Galilee. The disciples have watched him healing. They've heard him teaching. They've eaten with him. They've gone to sleep in the same places as him. They, they've laughed with him. They've cried with him. These guys are a band of brothers. They've trusted each other. They've lived together for three years. They've made themselves vulnerable to each other. So when Jesus dips that bread in the bowl and gives it to Judas and looks him in the eye and says, what you're going to do, do quickly, that's hard. That's hard for Jesus. That hurts him. That person's been with him for three years. They're close. What you're going to do, do quickly. He knows Judas is going to leave that room and go straight to his enemies, the people who want him dead, and going to give them information about where he is so they can come and arrest him and kill him. Jesus knows that's what's going to happen. He gives the bread to Judas, looks at him in the eye, and he's wounded. Jesus, he's troubled in spirit. This hurts Jesus. Those last four words there capture what's going on in verse 30, and it was night. You can almost imagine John, the guy who wrote this gospel, thinking back, replaying the video of what happened that night, and remembering the moment Judas opened the door, and the, the black rectangle that Jesus, Judas walked out into. It was night. And the next time they saw him, he had a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. And the night, the darkness that Judas walked into is the darkness that's in Jesus' heart. He's troubled in spirit. He's wounded by this guy. But it's not just the pain of betrayal that Jesus feels. There's also the pain of abandonment. Have a look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus knows it's coming, and he tells Peter it's coming. He tells him direct, tonight, this very night, you're not going to die for me. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. You're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. Three times, you're going to say to someone in the face, you don't even know me. He knows it's coming, but it doesn't make it any easier for him. It doesn't make it easier for Jesus that one of his closest friends is going to pretend he doesn't even know him. Jesus knows that when they leave that room, they're going to go into the garden. He knows he's going to ask three friends to watch and pray while he goes and talks to his father. He knows he's going to come back and find them asleep, having completely failed him in his hour of need. He knows that at that point, the soldiers are going to come and arrest him. And then every single one of his disciples, without exception, is going to run away. He knows that. And he knows from that point on, he's going to be totally alone. And again, keep in mind who these people are. They're his closest friends. His closest friends. And in his hour of greatest need, when the soldiers are coming to arrest him, he's abandoned. He's alone. Left on his own. Now, I've never been truly alone. I don't think I've ever been truly alone. I've always had people around me. I can't imagine how hard it must be to be truly alone, especially when the reason you're alone is because your closest friends have just left you. I can't imagine. This hurt Jesus. And from there he goes to his trial, alone. He's flogged and he's beaten alone. He carries his cross, alone. He's hung outside Jerusalem, alone, for all to see. And as he's hanging there, he's going to say these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's incredible. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He's been betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He's in agony And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, those words, I think, are primarily about the people who are torturing him and mocking him and making the crucifixion happen. But I think also included is everyone that's had anything to do with it, everyone that's involved, both passively and actively, those who actually killed him and those who allowed him to be killed. And I think it includes his disciples. I think he's on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. And he's got in mind his disciples. How do we know that? How, how, how do I know that? Well, look at the next time he meets them. What happens? There's no grudge. There's no holding against them what they've done. There's no, I'm going to make them pay. There's just grace and kindness and mercy. The risen Jesus comes and meets his disciples. They're scared. And he says, peace be with you. Just kindness and grace. Jesus is the ultimate forgiver. He was deeply hurt by his closest friends and he totally forgives them. He could have made them pay, but instead, he pays. There's always a cost, isn't there? And Jesus pays the ultimate cost. Instead of making them pay, he pays. He gives his life. He takes their sin. He takes their failure. He takes their betrayal. He takes their abandonment on himself and he dies in their place and he forgives them. It's incredible. And there's a mistake at this point that we could make in the message. The series is all about loving like Jesus, right? And we're talking about how we need to love each other like Jesus. We're talking about forgiveness. And I'm talking about how Jesus is the ultimate forgiver. And we could feel at this point, gulp. I've got to forgive like that? 
I've got to forgive people who have hurt me like Jesus. I've got no chance. And we could feel crushed by Jesus' example. But here's the thing. It's not just an example. Jesus didn't just do this to show us how to forgive. He did it for us. He's not just an example. He's a saviour. And before we can forgive like Jesus, we need to know we're forgiven by Jesus. Before we can forgive like Jesus, we need to know we're forgiven by Jesus. Before we put ourselves in his shoes, we need to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes because we're all like them. We all need to be forgiven. We all do say, think things that hurt other people. We all do. We're all part of the problem. We're not just victims. We're not just the people who get hurt. We're the people who hurt others. And in doing so, we hurt God. It may be big hurts. It may be that you've done something in your life that is a big hurt to someone else. Maybe a time in your life that you were off the rails, a time in your life that you had something you wanted and you wanted it so badly you were prepared to, to, to get anything out of the way to get that thing. And if people got in your way, you got them out of the way. And that's resulted in you hurting some people. You might have some things in your life that you regret. Some periods in your life where you've done things that have really hurt people and you regret them and you carry that around. It might be big hurts. Maybe. For all of us, whether we've done big things or not, we've got little things. We've got the little day-by-day, just messes we make of life that we, that we carry around. Ways in which we, again, wanting to get our way, wanting things to be the way we want. We get impatient. We get angry with those closest to us when it doesn't happen. We neglect the things we need to do because of our selfishness. We lash out. We hurt others. And as we do so, we're not just hurting those around us. We're hurting God. It's his world. He made us to live with him. He made us to live in relationship with him and with others. And when we don't do that, when we mess up his world, he is grieved. And when we turn away from him and live our own way at the center of our lives, without thought for others, without thought for him, he's grieved. It hurts him. Now, it doesn't come naturally to us to think of this, okay? I'm saying this, we all need to be forgiven. It doesn't come naturally because we naturally self-justify. We're really good at this. We're really good at thinking that we're fine and that other people are the problem, that we're the victim. We've got a a prayer dice that we sometimes use with with Chloe, our five-year-old. At the end of the day, it's got six sides and six things that you um, pray for, like thank you for, you roll the dice, Um, pray for the people in, in another country, Um, Sorry for. One of the sides is sorry for. And I'm sure every time I roll that dice, it lands on that, that, that side more than everyone else. And every time it happens, I go, okay, what do I say? My first thought is, I can't think of anything. I haven't got anything to feel sorry for. I've been great today. Nothing to say sorry for. And it doesn't take long to think of it more and think, yeah, okay, I've got a few things. First of all, that thing I just thought there. We naturally don't, think that we need to be forgiven. We naturally self-justify, but it doesn't take long for us to look back over our day, over our week, over our month, and see ways that we've let people down, see ways that we've hurt people, see ways that we've trampled over people to get our way, see ways that we've neglected people because we're getting our way. It doesn't take long. And I've certainly found, for myself, uh, marriage has been a great experience for showing me a bit of this. Um, There's been times, multiple times, where... there's been some kind of argument or tension and I've gone away, I've left the room and I know that what I need to do is just say sorry but it's the last thing I want to do because it's her fault, it's not my fault and I just take a few moments 
and I pray, and it doesn't take long for God to show me, okay, yeah, it's because of that thing you did today, because of that thing you said that this has happened, it's because of that thing you've not been doing for the last few weeks or months that this has happened, and all I need to do is to say, okay, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It doesn't come naturally to me, it doesn't come naturally to any of us, but we all need to be forgiven. We all sin against each other, and we all sin against God, all of us. But guess what? Jesus is the ultimate forgiver. And that includes you. It's not just his disciples. He's the ultimate forgiver of you too. He doesn't make you pay. He could make you pay for your sin, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He stretches out his arms and he takes it on himself. He pays. He pays for your sin and mine. He's the ultimate forgiver. And this is the key to forgiving others. That's the absolute key. You need to see, I need to see, the mercy he's had on you, the mercy he's had on me. Until we can see that we're forgiven by Jesus, we can't forgive like Jesus. We need to receive and know that we're forgiven if we are to have any chance of forgiving like him. Now, if you think you're pretty good at life, then this is going to be hard for you. If you think you're the victim and it's never your fault, this is going to be hard for you. But if you can see, if you can see the mess that you make of life and the mess that you make of other people's lives, and if you can see where you'd be without him, and if you can see what he's done in your life to get you here, how could you not forgive? How could you not? I can't emphasize this enough. We need to see and feel our own sin. And we need to see and feel the personalness of that sin against God if we're to ever experience the kind of forgiveness he wants of us. We need to see his grace and mercy for us before we can extend it to others. There's a song we sing at church um, that I I love, and it captures this really well. Um, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Because of what he did, I don't have to pay. That's how we forgive others, when we know how much we've been forgiven. So what does that actually look like for us in practice? What does it look like for us in practice here at Trinity? Well, maybe as I've been talking, you've been realizing there's a hurt you're holding on to. There's someone that's injured you from your past or your present and you're carrying it around with you. Maybe it was a big hurt. Maybe it's left a scar. Maybe it was a little hurt, just a thoughtless word, but it it goes deep. Maybe it's against someone here. Maybe there's someone in this room that you're nursing a grievance against because you feel they've hurt you and you don't want to let go of it. And maybe it's in danger of controlling you. Maybe that's you. First of all, remember... Remember how much you've been forgiven. Look at the cross. Look at your sin that held him there. Look at what he did. Look at his grace and mercy for you. Look at his forgiveness for you. Remember that. And secondly, realize, realize the person who suffers most from holding that grudge is you. And realize that without forgiveness, that wound will never heal. And that it's in your power to do it. That forgiveness only takes one person. Realize. And then pray. Pray for God's help. God, God I need your help. Help me to release this thing this person's done against me. Help me to let go. Help me to release them. Give me your heart for that person. Show me how much you've forgiven them. 
so that I can forgive. You even say, I want to forgive, but I don't know how. Help me. Help me through this. And don't expect instant healing, especially if it's a deep hurt. It's a process. It doesn't happen in a moment. Grief is a process. Forgiveness is a process. Especially for big hurts, that pain, that sting might return. And when it does, get on your knees again and pray again. And the amazing thing is, when you start forgiving, you find blessing. Have a look at verse 17 in John chapter 13. If you've got a Bible. Amazing verse. John, John chapter 13, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know this is the way that I've loved you, and if you know this is the way I'm calling you to love others, it's hard, it doesn't get any easier, but if you know these things and do them, you're blessed. There is a blessing in forgiving. There is a joy in releasing people from their debt as you've been released from your debt. There's a joy in it because it's the way of Jesus. It's the way we've been called to. It's not easy, but there is joy. And then when you're at peace, and only when you're at peace, it might be right to go to that person. A person who's injured you, who's, who's hurt you. Not in all cases. It depends on the level of hurt. depends on the, the maturity of that person, their willingness to engage. It requires mature, uh, discernment. It requires wisdom. And we've got life groups coming up this week. We're going to be talking about this in our life groups. Please come along. Make it if you can. And we can talk about these kind of questions together. Well, when do you go to a person? How do you forgive? What does it look like? It's a great place to, to explore this more um, in our community. Maybe as I'm talking, you're realizing you've hurt someone in your life, you're thinking, yeah, actually, I've been neglecting something or I've said something that I think has gone, gone down the wrong way. And seeking forgiveness, I'd say, is just as important as forgiving. If you know that's you, then maybe you need to follow up with someone, make a call, arrange a meeting, have a conversation. Now, this is really radical, and I'm aware it's radical. It's a massive thing because it's not the way the world does relationships, okay? The world does relationships in this way. You've hurt me, you pay. No question. You hurt me, you pay. In some way, I'll retaliate, I'll hold it against you. You hurt me, you pay. Jesus says, you hurt me, I pay. I take the cost, I forgive. This is really radical, but if we could be a community that does this, that lives this out, that forgives each other, that is quick to show grace, that is quick to show kindness, that is quick to, to not hold against each other our, our, our sin, when we rub up against each other the wrong way, when we experience friction and hurt, which we will, because we're all human, we're all different, we're all sinful. When that happens, wouldn't that be amazing if we could be quick to forgive, just like Jesus? And what would the watching world think? What would our friends think when they saw that? What would people think when they come into our church and see us loving each other like that, like Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? That would speak to them of what God's like, wouldn't it? Just over a month ago, it was Palm Sunday. And in Egypt, on Palm Sunday, it's a special day, and this year in Egypt, um, on that day, two suicide bombers went to two different churches in the city and detonated their bombs. And 46 people on that day were killed. 46 people. One of the people who was killed was a gatekeeper of one of the churches. And he actually stopped the suicide bomber from getting into the churchyard and saved who knows how many lives. And the widow of that gatekeeper was interviewed on, on state TV just after it happened. And through her tears, this Christian woman said, I'm not angry. I'm not angry at him. I forgive him. I want him to know I've forgiven him. It's an incredible clip. You can watch it on, on the internet. I'll put it in the church email. And this Muslim uh, interviewer who's, who's, who's uh, presenting is on the screen at the same time as this interview is happening live in this woman's home. 
And it's, you can see his reaction as she says it. He's visibly stunned. The interview completes. There's a few moments of silence while he tries to gather his thoughts and work out what to say. First thing he says, Egyptian Christians are made of steel. He can't believe it. He can't believe what's just happened. He says, the way these people forgive each other, it's amazing. The way these people forgive those who've hurt them. And he says this, these Christians are made from a different substance. Isn't that amazing? And he's right. And that's the point. Christians are made from a different substance. We're made from the substance of Christ. We're made from the substance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And when we love like him, when we extend to each other the love that he's shown to us, that shows the world what he's like. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So let's pray. Let's pray that we would be a community who loves each other just like Jesus. And let's pray that as we do, that everyone inside the church, each one of us, everyone who meets us would really be transformed, would be transformed by experiencing and knowing this glorious love that we know.